Good morning, Bridge. How are we doing, guys? So good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. So good to see you that are online. We've got a bunch of folks out there traveling this weekend. I understand the colors are really nice in the mountains. We've got at least one bridge group that's watching right now online. Leah Connor and her group are there. A bunch of our folks are in Kentucky, part of the Kentucky mission team, are there for their fall festival as well. So we just greet you guys. I know you're watching online, many others. They're with us in the online uh, services and location of the bridge as we continue to serve the Lord. Here's the bottom line, though, of what we're dealing with right now. Uh, you tell me if you agree. I believe that our nation is at a crossroads. I, you know, I, I'm 60, none of your business years old, and I've never seen the kind of attack on traditional biblical values that we're experiencing these days. Uh, I've never seen it. Uh, and I've never seen the moral decay that follows that at the levels that we're seeing it now. I've told our younger pastors, uh, guys, you know, there's a side of me that loves what I do, but there's a side of me that's kind of glad I'm at this end of all of that rather than at your end because you're going to experience things that I've never had to deal with in my 50 years of ministry. Uh, but I'm praying for revival. Anybody with me? I'm, I'm not ready to give up on America. Anybody with me? But if there's ever been proof of Solomon's words 2,500 plus years ago, uh, then it's what we're experiencing right now. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. I like the way the message paraphrases it. If people can't see what God is doing, what happens? They stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. That's true for a nation. That's true for a church. That's true for a family. That's true for you as an individual. It's especially true for the emerging generation that's coming along desperate for direction, desperate for values that, that, that are valuable enough to invest their lives in, desperate for a foundation to build their lives in, which is why we're calling this campaign that we kicked off last week, Building for the Generation. Generations. Yes, we're a multi-generational church. And yes, uh, we've got them all the way from just got, uh, just came into the world a few days ago to uh, I think we've got some members in their 90s. And so, you know, we're just, we're a multi-generational church, but we recognize that, that there is a cycle that goes on in, uh, in, in human history. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. I posted it on social media just a couple of days ago, a week or so ago. Maybe you saw it. it it's called the four-generational cycle. Cycle number one is a, is, a, is a generation that's passionate about God. They're active in church. They're in the word of God. They're in community with other members of the body of Christ. And they raise their children with that set of values and that set of beliefs. Their children, having not experienced the chaos of their parents' lives before they came to Christ, believe what their parents told them, but not with the same level of passion that their parents had. The result is that they raise their children to, to think about, you ought to consider, come to church with me. You know, I've heard a lot of people in my generation say, uh, you know, my parents, I, I had a drug problem when I was a kid. My parents drugged me to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. We all, you know, they, they kind of drug us there, but we, we didn't have the passion that our parents had who didn't have the passion that their grandparents had, which results in a generation of people who, for whom whose parents are saying, well, I really want you to make this decision for yourself, which leads to the breakdown of values and decay. Is this making sense? Is this tracking? 
Now, here's what I want you to hear me say. If you didn't hear any of that, hear this. That four-generation cycle is not new to the 21st century. That's been going on since the beginning of mankind. And the beauty of the fourth generation is that they often start crying out to God, and they start saying, surely there's a God somewhere. I know in my heart there's a God. I know there's a real thing. I've seen the fake, but I want the real. And revival often comes to the fourth generation that starts the cycle again. I'm praying for revival in my grandchildren right now. Come on. But I'm not just over here in the corner praying, oh, God, bring revival. We're doing something about it. We're going to make sure as a church that we're doing everything we can and need to do to lay the foundation for our children. And so for the last several months, the leadership team of our church has been praying and asking God, what, give us direction for the next season of the life of our church until you come, and he may come today. But he said, you know, stay busy till I get there. So what is it you want us to do, Lord, until you get here? And, and we believe God's given us a fresh vision for the direction of our church, not just for my sake, I'm in at that end of the spectrum, but for my children, my grandchildren, and for some of you great-grandchildren's sake. And we're simply calling it Changing Lives that change the world. Say it with me. Changing lives that change the world. You've seen it on the billboard. You've seen it in the lobby. You're going to see it a lot more. That's what we believe God has called us to do is to be a place where changing lives are in fact changing the world. And in case you're thinking, Pastor Jim, that's pretty grand, but it's kind of stupid to think that we're going to change 7 billion people. You really think that can happen? I don't know, but I do believe with everything in me that God's called us to be change agents. I don't believe he's called us to hunker down till he gets here. You know, the old hymn we used to sing when I was a kid, hold the fort for I am coming. I'm sorry, I'm not hiding in a fort. I'm taking territory for Jesus. Anybody with me? Come on. Come on. So as individuals, we're change agents for our world. And your world might be your immediate family, your extended family, your co-workers, your neighbors. I mean, you know what your world, your sphere of influence is. As a church, our world starts right here in, in Princeton and Rosewood and Wayne County and Johnston County. That's why we're going to serve at the Princeton schools next Saturday. If you haven't signed up, go online, get signed up, be out there. We're going to make some, some make changes. We're engaging in the school systems around here to try to make a difference for, for some people like Sarah and Ryan who are out in the lobby today have a call in their lives to go to India. They've got all their material out there. Go get a prayer card, meet them, say hello, uh, get involved in what God has called them to do. For some people, it's, it's the uttermost parts of the earth. For all of us, I believe with everything in me that we are called to invest in the emerging generation. In fact, I, I believe that so strongly that I, I've committed publicly and privately to give the rest of my productive life to this completely engage myself. And yes, I have lots of offers and lots of opportunities to do lots of other things. And every time I say, you know, thank you that I'm honored that you asked me, but I know what God's called me to do. He's called me to give the rest of my productive life as long as you'll have me to making a difference, raising up the emerging generation in Eastern North Carolina and beyond through the ministries of the bridge. And I make no apology for suggesting the same thing to you. It may well be the most spiritually significant thing you do with your entire life to become a part of what God is doing 
through the ministries of the bridge. If there's another church God's called you to do, get in it, roll up your sleeves and help them do what God's called them to do. But here, I believe we're pulling out all the stops. We're gonna make a difference in our times. And that's why we are pulling out all the stops. We're inviting you to, to the next step to hear about this vision. Way too much detail to deal with on a Sunday morning. And that's why we've got the vision gatherings coming up September uh, 27 and 28. Uh, go to the website, get registered for either Wednesday or Thursday night. They're the same gathering. It's entirely up to you, whatever fits your schedule. Yeah, we're gonna do childcare for birth through five years old. But we want your kids sitting at the table with you as we cast this vision. Why? Because this is a family thing. We want your families talking with each other about what that means for your family. We want your families interacting with each other about what you're going to do to help the emerging generation. You are raising the emerging generation in your own homes. And so, yes, they're family gatherings where we're going to come together and worship and go into a lot more detail about the vision that God, I believe, has given us for the next season in the life of our church. So get registered. If you haven't already, get registered. Go to the website. Do it right now. Nobody else will accuse you of texting in church. Just pull up your phone and go, and I'll, I'll wait for you uh, until you get done. Okay, I won't wait. One of the reasons that I really want you to be there is because I do believe that if we rally our hearts around this thing, we can make a difference in our times and we can spark a revival for ourselves and for the generation. But there's also, just from my own experience over the years, four things that I see happen when a group of people come together around a shared vision. I see shared vision producing passion. Knowing that God has birthed something in a group of people that's gonna make a difference in their times. People wanna be a part of that and it creates an energy that goes beyond, boy, that was a great song set or boy, Jim really brought a good message today or these are really nice people, all that's wonderful stuff. But, but there's a passion that comes because I've, I, I believe I'm investing my one and only life in something that eternally matters. It also attracts assistance once the people who share that vision begin to come together and that energy comes together. Other people see that and they want to be a part of it. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2 in the early church. Uh, the Bible says that they enjoyed the favor of all the city and, and they added daily those who were being saved. It attracted people to it like a moth to a flame. The third thing that happens is it creates a community, a sense of we're in this together. We're linking arms. We're going into battle together. Ask any soldier who's been in a combat, combat uh, uh, situation, and they will tell you to a person, there is a camaraderie, there is a bond that forms in that setting that the average person just can't explain, can't even understand, can't wrap their brain around. And unless you think I'm making a comparison I shouldn't make, we're at war for the souls of our children. And so we're in a battle. Something happens when we link arms in that battle and we do it together. Surprisingly, with all of that that happens, it also promotes your own personal growth. Yeah, the fact is, when you catch a vision, when you decide to invest in a vision, it stretches you beyond your comfort zone. It does. It calls on you to exercise faith at a level that you perhaps have never exercised it before. It, it, it even calls on you to make personal sacrifices, understanding that the word sacrifice means to give up something of value for something of greater value. Yes, it calls on us to do all of that, but it pays so much more than it costs. You understand that vision at the end of the day is just a vehicle for you to become more like Christ? Do you understand that God doesn't need you to do anything? 
I mean, he spoke and the world came into existence. What exactly does he need you to do? He gives you vision so that you will do something that is beyond you so that you have to depend on him in order to accomplish what you've committed to so that you can see who he is so you can become more like him. That's what vision's all about at the end of the day. It is about making a difference. It is about churches coming together with passion and community. But at the end of the day, it's about helping you become more like Christ. So again, if you haven't registered for the vision gathering, get in, get registered, come on. We're going to have a full meal together. We're going to worship together. And then I'm going to share in far more detail than I came on Sunday morning, the vision that we believe God's given us for the next season of the church. You with me? You with me? All right, let's get into today's message. We also understand <coughs> that, uh, that you've got to have some values. You've got to define the core values that ultimately define you as the foundation for everything that you do. And that's why during this series, we're dedicating our Sunday mornings to looking at the core values of our church and making sure that we understand if we don't get anything right, we're going to get these things right. So let's walk through them. Week by week, we're walking through each one. But let's walk through them together. Just a reminder for those of you that are new, you can catch a glimpse of it. You'll see a lot more of this in the days ahead. Okay, here we go. Number one is live biblically. And we talked about that last week. If you missed it, go online and get the web uh, from the website. You can get the message. Number two is love unconditionally. Number three is relate sincerely. Next is worship passionately. Then grow intentionally. We believe as long as there's one person that needs Jesus, we can't put up a no vacancy sign. We got to reach them. We've got to reach them. Reach globally. I believe the Holy Spirit's empowered us to make a difference, not just locally, not just regionally, but internationally. And we believe that's going to happen. And then also serve unselfishly because the Christian life at the end of the day is not about consuming. It's about producing. I sincerely believe that if we will live by these values, and we're going to unpack them all in great detail over the next few weeks, then the vision that God's given us will become a, a reality not just for the entire world, but, but for your world and for mine. And the bridge will become a place where changing lives change the world. Say it with me again one more time. Okay, changing lives that change the world. One more time, changing lives that change the world. So week by week, we're looking at these values. Today, we're looking at serve unselfishly. And I see the clock. I wanted to spend a couple of minutes on vision this morning so you understand why I'm so passionate and fired up about this for the sake of my own children and grandchildren and yours. Uh, but I want us to spend a few minutes now talking about this value of serving unselfishly. Are we selfish people? Don't look at anybody, but yeah, it's just, I mean, when the word goes out that a storm is coming, do we make sure that everybody has bread and milk? Or do we go empty the store shelves? Do we make sure everybody has toilet paper? How much do you have in your closet? I want to know how much TP do you have in your home? Please don't bring it to my house and cover my house. Don't TP my house, Okay. It's what, it's what we do. I mean, that inward turn happens for all of us. So it is about serving, but it's also serving unselfishly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Let's read the scripture together. One, two, three, go. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Simple, straightforward message, but a couple of really important details that I don't want to gloss over or miss. And that simply is, number one, we are all born... Regardless of the circumstances of your birth, 
We are all born on purpose with a purpose. And that purpose is, what does the scripture say? To do good works. In other words, to do ministry, to serve. So my two goals today is to break that idea of, of serving unselfishly down a little bit and then to make it as personal as I possibly can as we make personal application to all of this. To do that, we're going to go to what may be a familiar story, Matthew chapter 25, the story of a rich man who went away on a trip and entrusted his assets to three of his most trusted employees and gave them an assignment before he left. In that story, he gives us three eternal principles and three basic truths. Let me tell you what they are uh, as we unpack them together. Okay, ready to get into it? Basic principle number one, eternal principle number one is what's called the principle of ownership. The principle of ownership. Read Matthew chapter 25, verse 14 with me, okay? One, two, three, go. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. So you got the picture, rich dude's going away, calls his trusted employees together, says, guys, I need you to take care of my stuff till I get back, which leads to basic truth number one, everything I have belongs to God. Say it with me. Everything I have belongs to God. One more time. Everything I have belongs to God. The psalmist said the earth and is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Guys, we spend our lives trying to accumulate stuff. Every now and then we got to stop and remember that what we have, we don't actually own. We get to borrow it used for 60, 70, 80, 90 years, and then we pass it on used more to the next generation. That, that's the reality, because at the end of the day, it belongs all to God. Second eternal principle is the principle of allocation, and it's found in verse 15 of our passage. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. What's the basic truth that you see in that verse? It is that God has given me some talents. Say it with me. God has given me some talents. One more time. I didn't hear you. God has given me some, some talents. Now, I want you to understand something. The word goods that we saw in verse 14 a minute ago relates to anything of value. He's talking about his assets as a, probably a farmer whatever his assets were. The word talent in verse 15 literally means weighing scales. So, so it's a way of measuring something. Most scholars will tell you that one talent was about $1,000 worth of stuff. And could that be money? Sure, it could. Could it be assets? Could it be equipment? Could, whatever it is, uh, it's a measure. And so in those days, it was probably about $1,000 worth of stuff, which was valuable, $1,000 was a bunch of money back then, but the full meaning of it is more than money. Frankly, it's anything of value. So for these guys, the rich man gave one of them about $5,000 worth of goods. He gave another one about $2,000 worth of goods. And he gave another one uh, $1,000 worth of goods. That for us means what? When I say talents or goods, what am I talking about? I'm talking about anything you have that has value. I'm talking about your talents. I'm talking about your gifts, your abilities, the things that you're capable of doing. I'm talking about your time. Anybody agree with me that time becomes more valuable than money sometimes? It seems to be in greater shortage for many of us. It's true. I'm talking about, yeah, and I am talking about your money as well. So we're talking about your time. We're talking about your talents. We're talking about your, your treasures. And two things you got to notice so far, everything, everybody got something, but nobody got the same thing. 
Everybody got something, but nobody got the same thing. The point simply is there's no such thing as a no-talent person. I got a bunch of amens over here. You guys away because this mic on over here and this speaker's work. There's no such thing as no-talent people. Thank you very much. There's no such thing as no-talent people. You have abilities. You have skills. You have time. You have all kinds of things. Well, I, you know, I may have a few abilities, but I don't have any time. You know how busy I am. I'm sorry. you got the same 168 hours a week that everybody else has got. Hello. Got two or three amens out of that one. Okay. I ain't got no money. I'm broke. You know, you know the brokest person in America is one of the richest people on the planet? Broke people's got a flat screen TV and two cars in the driveway. Come on, let's, let's, let's be real about what that is. Romans chapter 12, verse 6 says, We all have different gifts, each of which came because of the grace God gave us. So we can't brag about whatever we have. He's the one that gave it to us. At the end of the day, it all really belongs to him, and he's given all of us something. Not necessarily the same amount, but we all have Something, which leads us to the third principle, and here's where I want to camp out for a minute, and that's the principle of accountability. Basic truth number three is God expects me to use my talents. God expects me to use my talents. Say it with me. God expects me to use my talents. Look at verse 19 in our story. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. In other words, he made an investment in them and now he's come back to check on the return on his investment. He expects an ROI, a return on investment. Now hear me, he's telling us the story to illustrate the reality that one day God's going to do an audit. One day, every man, every woman will give an account of himself to God. Romans chapter 14 makes it very clear. One day there's going to be an accounting for all of us. But here's the good news. God wants you to pass the accounting, so he tells you the two questions that are on the test in advance so that you can be prepared. It's like a teacher who says, let me give you the answers to the test before you get here. All you got to do is remember the answers, write them down, and you get 100 on the test. That's the kind of teacher he is. The first question has to do with whether you get into heaven and that question is, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? What did you do about my son, Jesus Christ? Did you put your trust in your being a good enough person? Did you put your trust in your own abilities? Did you put your trust in, in something? Or did you put your trust in my son, Jesus Christ, and what he did for you on Calvary? And if you say, check your book, you'll find my name written in your book in his blood. He'll say, welcome into the joys that have been prepared for you. That's the entry question. The second question is the reward question, and that is, what did you do with the talents, the goods, the time, the money, the abilities that I gave you? What did you do with it? Is there a return on the investment that I made in you? That's the second question, and that determines the level of reward and the level of authority in eternity. Scriptures are clear. Um, now, let's go back to our story, okay? Two of these guys did what? Anybody know? They invested. They went out there and they did what they're supposed to do and they increased. They, in fact, doubled the amount of the assets that they'd been trusted to and the master was excited and he congratulated them and he gave them more. Doesn't seem fair, does it? The rich get richer? That doesn't seem fair, does it? Well, have you ever heard of the law of use and abuse? 
You heard of the law of use and abuse? The law of use and abuse says that if you use something properly, what happens? Anybody know? If you use it properly, it enhances. If you go to a gym and work your muscles properly, what happens? Your muscles get bigger. They get stronger. If you try to learn a new language and you use that language and you practice that language, what happens? Your language skills increase with time. That's the law of use and abuse says if you use it properly, you enhance it. If you don't use it, however, what happens? You lose it. If you don't use a muscle, what happens to the muscle? It eventually atrophies, which is why the doctors want you to get out of bed as soon as possible after surgery so that your muscles won't begin to atrophy, including your lungs and other important organs. They want you up moving because they know the law of use and abuse is True, I remember vividly, I remind myself of it from time to time, uh, the first time I brought a message in my home church, the the widow of the founder of our church greeted me after the service and she said, Jim, you're gonna make a fine preacher someday. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I fulfilled her prophecy or not, but I understood something. If I wanna get good at this, I gotta work at this. I gotta get better at this. I gotta use it properly in order to improve it over time. But the third guy in our story was scared, had all kinds of excuses. So he decided that he would just bury his and the master's reaction just messes with my brain every time I read it. Verse 26 of Matthew 25, you wicked, lazy servant. Anybody think he's ticked? Why? Because he expected a return on his investment. He gave him those goods, those talents, those assets, time, talents, and treasures to use them and to accomplish something with them in order to multiply them, not to bury them. Now put yourself in these three guys' shoes. How do you think servant number one is feeling right about now? Man, I'm feeling good. Thank you, sir. Man, he's feeling good about the pat on the back that he got. He's expecting additional rewards. In fact, he's getting additional rewards for having done so well. How's the second guy feeling? He didn't get as much as the first guy, but how's he feeling? He's feeling just as good because he doubled his stuff too. So it's it's all relative to what you got. And so he's excited too. How about the third guy? How's he feeling? He's just kind of shuffling his feet. Every party needs a loser. That's why they invited me. Party pooper. That's how he's feeling right now, right? He probably sings better than I do, but that's, that's how he's feeling. Can I just tell you <laughs> that I meet bored Christians all the time? I meet Christians going through the motions all the time. And the tragic reality is that I can almost name it every time. Oh, they will tell you that they're in the place that they're at because somebody hurt them or because somebody in a church did them wrong or because churches are hypocritical or judgmental or mean-spirited. But I can tell you to a person what brought them to that place almost every time. It's because their Christian life stopped being about being a change agent based on God's vision for their life. It stopped being about God put me on this planet for a purpose and he's given me 
time, talent, and treasures to accomplish that purpose, and my life has meaning and purpose and will eternally matter because I'm investing in what he's given me when it stopped being about that and started being about the routines and the rituals. And I, I went to church, and I used my phone and texted a few bucks into the offering and just kind of went through the motions of this thing. The result is almost every time they lose the spark, they lose the excitement, they lose the anticipation, they lose the wonder of what God is doing. In my experience, nine out of 10 Christians who have lost their spark, lost it because they started trying to do life on the sidelines, playing it safe, not stretching out of their comfort zone, becoming consumers instead of producers in the kingdom of God and in time ultimately lost the desire to even be put in the game. Guys, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, please, I beg you, hear me. Life is not a spectator sport. Somebody said the Super Bowl is a parable of the church. 22 men down on the field desperately in need of rest and 22 million uh, watching desperately in need of exercise. I don't know if that's true or not. But I think that's why he gave us the story to tell us these simple truths that everything I have really belongs to God, that God has given me something, whatever it is, and God expects me to do something what he's entrusted to me. And I know, I know, I know, as soon as I start talking like this and I start kind of challenging people, there, there are a thousand reasons that come into your mind as to why you would if you could, but you can't. Well, I can't serve, I can't give, I can't, I can't do these things that that, that, that God, I recognize God's blessed me and I recognize God's uh, gifts in my life and I, I get that, but I just can't because, and, and frankly, I've been at this long enough that, that I've probably heard whatever reason, excuse you have. There's a thousand of them, but I, I found three that, that are most common. Let me see, see if you relate to any of these, okay? The first one is uh, we blame our limitations. I would serve, but I, I, I'm limited. You know, if I, if I could sing like Mike Smith, I'd be up there singing too, right? Come on. You know, if I, could, if I could preach like Jim, I'd be preaching too. If I could lead kids' ministries like Pastor Holly, I, I'd be leading kids' ministries too. If I could like somebody else does, and I just need you to hear me say as blunt as it may be, if you're not using the talents that you have, you wouldn't serve if you had more. Hello, because these three guys all got three different levels of gift. That had nothing to do with whether they served or not. Does, does Ephesians say, well, Jimmy, I just, I just don't have time. You just know how busy my life is. I get it. But does Ephesians 2 say that God created you for good works if you can fit it in your schedule? Or did he say that he prepared those works for you before you filled your calendar up? Come on. Second thing we do is we often blame our past. Well, Jim, you don't know. You don't know about my past. You, you don't know what's happened in my, in my past. I mean, my mother scrubbed my ears too hard, and I have these repressed hostilities now. Did your mama do that? My mama used to lay my head down on the sink and put a rag around her finger and dig into my ears. I thought she was mining for brains. She would just... <laughs> I'm going to get that dirt out of there, whatever it costs. It's coming out of there. I said, you know, so no, I just can't. I'm not making fun of your past. I'm just saying, guys, it's your past. 
If you're letting your past define your present, it ain't your past, it's your present. And it's defining your future. Come on. The Bible says when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, we are new creations. Everything becomes new. Learn from the past. Find a place for it, but let the scar remind you of healing, not of pain. And use what God's given you. The worst one, though, from this story, and I've heard it, perhaps you have, is we blame God. I would serve, but, you know, God. Verse 24 of our story, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered. I was afraid. In other words, God, I know that you are unpleasable. And so I figured it was safer to hide this, to bury this, than to to give it a shot and then have you be disappointed in me. I need you to hear me say, if you're thinking that God might be disappointed in you because you didn't do it perfectly, you're not going to do it perfectly. Nobody does. And God loves you consistently and unconditionally. He's not demanding perfection of you. He's demanding that you use whatever gifts, talents, and abilities you have for a return on investment in eternity. God says, I love you completely. I just want you to try. You can almost feel his frustration. A little bit like the British preacher that toured America some years ago that I heard about, maybe you've heard about him. He, he came to the States for the first time and, and he started meeting, uh, you know, visiting American churches and visit, meeting American Christians. And he came to the conclusion pretty quickly uh, that, that American Christians uh, don't serve. You know, you've got a percentage that do and huge percentage that doesn't. Uh, and so he, he felt like the Lord was telling him to write a message and preach it everywhere he went, uh, challenging people to step up and serve. The problem is that he didn't understand the difference between British English and American English. And so he started out his sermon by saying, since coming to America, I met a lot of Christians who loved the sentence, I would serve, but... And, uh, and, and there were three points in his sermon. I've come to the conclusion, he said, that American Christians have a but. That took a minute, didn't it? The second point in his sermon is some buts are bigger than other buts. And the third point in his sermon is you can't see your butt, but everybody else can. And the moral of the story is quite clear. Come on. Oh, the moral of the story is quite clear. Oh, the moral of the story. Yes, the moral of the story. Oh, the moral of the story is quite clear. One day, God's going to expose your excuses. (laughs) Come on. The point is this. I can't please God by sitting in the stands. And I will stand before him one day. So let me get real personal and I'll hush. As your pastor, I, I want almost desperately for you to be ready for that audit. I lay awake at night trying to figure out how can I help them understand that there's an audit coming. The first question is, what did you do about my son, Jesus Christ? And if you haven't settled that issue, if you haven't put in your faith in Jesus Christ, the altars are going to be open. We're going to pray today before you leave this room. Settle that one. 
And the second question is, what did you do with the time, talents, and treasures that I gave you? Where's the return on my investment? And that's why we're doing this Building for the Generations campaign. Between now and Thanksgiving, we're really focusing our energies on what's it going to look like if we're going to make a difference in the generations. And yes, I'm going to ask you, as I never have in the five years that I've had the privilege of serving you, I'm going to ask you to step up. I'm going to ask you to step out by faith in ways and at levels you never have before. I'm going to ask you to get real about Ephesians 2 and ask yourself the question, what are those good works that God has called me to and prepared it in advance for me, I'm going to ask you to get serious about Matthew 25 and say, what are the time, talents, and treasures he's giving me and how am I investing him in the kingdom? I'm going to ask you to get real practical about what that looks like and then make investments in those things. The vision that I believe our leadership team has heard from God on, changing lives that change the world, will ultimately bring about the revival for our emerging generations. I believe it with everything in me, and I'm thrilled to invest my life in it. I'm asking you to consider as well. So get registered. Vision Gatherings, October 27, 28. Go to the website. Get in there. Both nights are the same. Pick one that works for you. Again, we'll do child care for the littles, but we want your kids, school-age kids, with you in the room. We want you engaging as a family as we talk about the vision that God's given us. And I believe sincerely as we lean into this, that in fact that shared vision will produce passion, it will uh, attract assistance, it will create a sense of community, and ultimately all of us will personally grow to become more like Christ as never before. And maybe, maybe just as importantly, is we will make a difference in our world. I got a hush, but uh, can I tell you that I've seen this happen? I mean, I've watched it happen. Many years ago when Kim and I were in the Philippines, we had a young lady that came to us. Some of you have heard the story. If you've read my book, it's the opening chapter in my book, Unmuted, Restoring the Church's Voice. Absolutely true story. Gloria came to our board uh, and said, um, God's called me to plant a church in, in the Cagayan Valley of northern Philippines. Incredibly remote, uh, headhunters in that region. God's called me to go there. 19-year-old girl, 4 foot 11, 85 pounds. God's called me to go to this remote region of, the, of a third world country and plant a church. And, and I, being the spiritual giant that I am, talked her out of it. I said, well, Gloria, you know, that's, that's a dangerous place for a young lady to go. Um, Maybe you ought to intern for a year under one of the churches that's closer by and get a little experience under your belt. And then, and then we'll talk again about Isabella next year. And so sure enough, the next year came around, time for the annual gathering of the movement. And she asked for an appointment with the board again. And uh, she sat down and said, okay, can I go to Isabella now? You, you told me to give it a year and I've done it. Can I go now? And, and I immediately started in. Oh, Gloria, you know, that's just so... I don't know, that's tough. That's... And she began to weep. She said, oh, sir, you don't understand. I have to go. I need your blessing. I want your help. But I got to go whether I get it or not. Because God's given me a vision for the Cagayan Valley. And I got to invest my life in it. So we agreed. We put what few resources we had together we gave her a guitar and a bus ticket and $15 a month and sent her away. She went to one of the poorest regions in the country. I mean, they, they planted a rice crop. 
that ran out every year before the next harvest came. And so there were two to three months of starvation every year. Deep, deep sin in the place. And she went. So remote it took three weeks to even get a telegram out or in. But we got a telegram from her one day saying, would you come? I've been doing uh, some classes with the, with the children. I'd love for you to come and do a graduation ceremony with them. And so I put a little team together and we loaded up in my little four-wheel drive truck and we went up into Isabella. And the entire village came to the graduation. 165 souls. The elder of the village uh, asked to speak in the opening session. It turned out to be a, a 10 days. It turned, we thought it was going to be a couple of days, turned into 10 days. But the opening session, he came out and said, I need to say a few words. And we're thinking, okay, we don't know what's going to happen here because, you know, he, we got his permission. The elder is, you know, the king of that village. Uh, we got his permission to come have a graduation with the children and now the whole village is here. We don't know what he's going to say. Is he going to have us killed? We don't know. We're sitting there wondering. And he said, uh, well, I can tell you these people are miracle workers because I gave them permission for the children to gather and it looks like everybody's come. <laughs> In that 10-day period, 163 of the 165 people in that village made a commitment to Jesus Christ. We did a water baptism in the Magat River that went on all day. We'd baptize a while and take a break for a while and baptize for a while and take a break for a while. And Gloria, who started teaching choruses to the children and then started doing Bible studies with the children, became the pastor of the church that formed. Fast forward 25 years later, Kim and I went back for a visit. And uh, we had visited the, the Philippines many times after coming back to the States, but we had yet to go back to that remote place called Isabella. And so this time I said to the national leader, I've, I've got to go to Isabella. I've got to see Gloria. I've got to see what's going on. As we drove into the village, uh, I was surprised because it was dry season, but there was rice. I don't understand that. Because rice takes a lot of water. We got into the village, and the first thing we encountered was a elementary school with 100 children playing glockenspiels and tambourines and greeting us with songs. The principal of the school, probably in her 30s, came up to me and she said, oh, sir, bear with me. Uh, she said, the last time I saw you, I was six, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And now all these children know Jesus, and we have chapel every Monday morning in school. It's a different place. They figured out how to, to, to create irrigation systems off of the Magat River. So they have two crops of rice a year now, not one. So they don't starve, they export rice. 
So the economic quality of the place has gone up. Turns out the elder that resisted us was in charge of the vices in the region, gambling and prostitutions and alcohol, and his wife got saved. He eventually came to Christ himself, and it shut down that operation in the village. And so the village is now 500 people. The church is at the center of that village, and Gloria and Ellie her husband, have now planted, last I heard, 26 churches across that region. The Cagayan Valley is a different place because somebody caught a vision and invested her one and only life in it. Can we make a difference like that in Wayne County? In Johnston County? Can we? Can we make a difference like that in our children and our grandchildren? Is that possible or is that a pipe dream? Should we just give up and just say, hunker down till Jesus gets here? Or should we rally and say, come on, let's give our one and only lives to something that eternally matters and just see what God does with it? Yeah. Something in me says God's up to something. I've gone too long today, but I hope you hear my heart. I believe he's up to something and I want to be a part of it. I want you to be a part of it too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being a part of what you're doing in the world. And as we lay a foundation for our children and grandchildren, remind us that we are going to become more like you in the journey. Help us to invest time, talent, treasures, assets, the things you've blessed us with into kingdom building. And then in the final day, just give us the confidence that you're gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys that have been prepared for you. Keep your heads bowed for just a second. I'm not gonna keep you, but I am gonna give you an opportunity to pray a prayer with me this morning. The altars will be open in a moment. The altar teams are here. They would love to pray with you as well. But at the very least, would you pray a simple prayer with me? Just a prayer of preparation for the audit. First part, pray in your own words if you want. Silently, aloud, I don't care, but pray. Jesus, I put my trust in you. I can't close the gap between a holy God and my sinful self, but I believe that you did on Calvary. I'm putting my trust in you. Forgive me and give me a fresh start today. And I believe that you've given me some abilities. You've given me some time. You've given me some finances. You fully intended to get a return on that investment. And I commit to that today as well. I thank you in advance for the life change that's going to come because of the investment that I'm making. In Jesus' name, Father, you know who's praying. You know exactly what's going on in their hearts. Draw us to you as you draw us together. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.